Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 18, From Epic to Lyric. Last episode, we discussed the creative energy that exploded forth in the realm of art and architecture. Well, that same sort of energy can also be found in the sphere of writing. We have already discussed the impact that literacy had on the ancient Greeks, and have gone into extensive detail about the two infamous poets, Homer and Hesiod. But there was so much more happening than just those two in the realm of literary creation in the archaic period. In the next few episodes, we are going to discuss other influential people whose writings give us an insight into the various economic, social, and political happenings that are reshaping archaic Greece. In addition to Homer, there were other epic poets that cemented the various oral myths that were passed down from generation to generation. The other poets of the so-called epic cycle were most assuredly writing after Homer, and styled their poems after the great bard. As we have mentioned before, the Iliad only detailed only a small part of the tenth year of the Trojan War, because Homer's audience would have already known the story. Well, these other epic poets wrote down the rest of the story. Thus, the epic cycle related the full story of the Trojan War. Although some scholars sometimes include the Iliad and the Odyssey among the poems of the epic cycle, the term is more often used to specify the non-Homeric poems, as distinct from the Homeric ones. Aside from the Iliad and the Odyssey, the epics only survive in fragments. Fortunately, the tales told in the cycle are recounted by other ancient sources, notably Virgil's Aeneid, Ovid's Metamorphoses, Quintus of Smyrna's Post-Homerica, and Aeschylus's Oresteian trilogy, as well as summaries from late antiquity and the Byzantine period. We will do a very brief overview of the six books. The Cypria, written by Stasinus of Cyprus, narrates the events leading up to the Iliad in 11 books. It contained an account of the judgment of Paris, the rape of Helen, the landing of the Achaeans on the coast of Troy, and the first nine years of the war. The Aethiopis, was written by Arctinus of Miletus in five books. It follows after the storyline of the Iliad, opening up after the death of Hector. It narrates the arrival of the Trojan allies, that is the Amazon queen, Penthesilea, and the Ethiopian king, Memnon. Their deaths at Achilles' hands, and Achilles' own death by an arrow shot by Paris. The so-called Little Iliad was written by Lescus of Lesbos in four books. It narrates the events after Achilles' death including the building of the Trojan horse, and the awarding of Achilles' armor to Odysseus, resulting in Ajax committing suicide. The Iliupersis, written by Arctinus as well, narrates the destruction and sack of Troy by the Greeks in two books. The Nostoi, written by Aegeus of Trozene, narrates the return home of Agamemnon, Menelaus, and Helen. Finally, there is the Telegoni, written by Eugamom of Cyrene in two books. It follows after the Odyssey and narrates the murder of Odysseus by Telegonus, Odysseus's unbeknownst son to Circe. There are probably uncountable other epic poets who wrote their own versions of the Trojan War cycle that have been lost to history. Although many such poets continue to compose these lengthy epic narratives, most archaic poets chose not to follow in the giant footsteps of Homer, who was already canonized as the supreme bard by the early 7th century BC. They instead turn their talents to other genres of poetry. And thus in literary expression, as well, the archaic period was one of innovation. 
as there was a sudden effusion of poetry that was markedly different from the poetry of Homer and Hesiod. We lumped this new style of poetry together all under the generic title of lyric poetry, so-called because the poetry was often composed using a lyra, or lyre. These poets were writing about deeply personal matters, and in many cases, in the first person, very different than the austere anonymity of the epic narrator in Homer. Although lyric poetry would be continued to be written well into the Hellenistic and Roman periods, the 7th, 6th, and early 5th centuries BC is known as the Lyric Age of Greece. Culturally, Greek lyric poetry is the product of the political, social, and intellectual environment of the Greek polis. The roots of lyric poetry, however, extend far back in time to folk songs created for specific occasions, such as harvests, weddings, funerals, and coming-of-age rituals, or to hymns, fables, drinking songs, and love songs. In other words, everything that pertained to communal and private life. With the advent of literacy, such poems could be preserved and circulated. In this manner, poets could attain not merely local, but panhellenic fame by competing with their more carefully crafted songs, composed and polished in writing. Some Greek lyric poems celebrate athletic victories, or a famous event in their polis's history, commemorate the dead, exhort soldiers to valor, and offer religious devotion in the form of hymns, pions, and dithrams. Most lyric poetry, though, was personal, sometimes extremely so, in subject and tone. The poets sang about drinking, friends and enemies, old age and death, politics, war, and morality. Love poems praised the beloved, expressed unfulfilled erotic desire, or blamed the former lover for a breakup. The poet's tone could vary from lighthearted to bitter to contemplative. We also must keep in mind that since these poems were meant to be performed, the poets could have adopted a variety of public personas. Regardless, they not only give us rare insights into feelings about personal matters, but also because private life and polis life were so closely intertwined, they reflect sentiments and attitudes about their society. The archaic period, as we have already seen, was a time of enormous upheaval, and the lyric poets were not shy at reflecting on these contemporary events. In addition, the lyric poets wrote in very different, complex meters than those found in the Homeric epics, which was confined to a single rhythm, the relatively straightforward dactylic hexameter. Each of the several genres commonly grouped under the name lyric had its own metrical pattern, subject matter, occasion, tone, and musical accompaniment. Like epic poetry, lyric poetry was presented in performance. Lyric poetry is also known as melic poetry from melos, meaning song, from where we get the word melody. However, they were not simply song lyrics in the modern sense. A major distinction was also made between solo songs and those performed by a chorus of youths. Lyric poems were presented before large public audiences at festivals, as well as in small private gatherings, like a symposium or drinking party. Unlike the epic poetry of Homer or the didactic poetry of Hesiod, lyric poems are far shorter ranging in length from a few lines to possibly several hundred. One of the most popular subgenres of lyric poetry was the elegy, though the ancients considered it a different category. Unlike epic and lyric verse, which were accompanied by string instruments, like the lyre, elegy was typically accompanied by a flute-like wind instrument called aulis, and its performance therefore required at least two people, one to sing and one to play. 
It's believed to have originally been associated with lamentation, as scholars have theorized that the name elegy was derived from the Greek phrase elege, elege, which essentially means woe, cry, woe, cry, and was used in funerary songs. But the lyric poets expanded its use to other themes that conveyed any strong, serious emotion. An elegiac couplet consists of two lines, a hexameter line followed by a pentameter line, and usually makes sense on its own while forming part of a larger work. It is called hexameter because in Greek, hex means six, and thus it has six dactyls, which is a long syllable followed by two short syllables. In the same sense, pentameter receives its name from pentos, which means five. There are, of course, some exceptions and variations in the syllables. I am not particularly adept at meter scansion in ancient Greek and Latin poetry, so I'm not even going to try to explain how all of this works. Just know that elegiac couplets with dactylic hexameter followed by dactylic pentameter was a much more flexible medium than the straight lines of dactylic hexameter found in Homer. In addition to lyric, iambic poetry was also popular in the archaic period. Instead of using the dactyl meter of a long syllable followed by two short syllables, a iambus was a short syllable followed by a long syllable. It featured insulting and obscene language and sometimes is referred to as blame poetry. Blame ranges from humorous ribbing of friends to merciless attacks on outsiders. It was informal and intended to entertain, and it seems to have been performed on similar occasions as elegy, even though it lacked elegy's decorum. Among ancient literary theorists, iambic verse came to be regarded as lower than lyric poetry, partly because iambic meter was thought to be the simplest of verse forms and the nearest to common speech, but also because of its undignified content. There is no sure evidence about the original venue for iambic poetry, but the drinking party and the cult festival were probably the main occasions, nor do we know clearly what role iambic poetry played in ancient society. It was certainly complex, though. It seems to have found a voice during times of social change and political dissent when the poet felt entitled or empowered to preach and condemn. We are aware of around two dozen poets from the Archaic period. Sadly, we are only left with a small sampling of what was written in the form of fragments that would scarcely fill a single book. During the 3rd century BC, the scholars at the Library of Alexandria created a canonical group of nine poets esteemed worthy of critical study, which they called the Malikos, or Lyrikos, meaning the Melic or Lyric poets. In most Greek sources, the word Malikos is used. But the variant lyricos became the regular form in Latin, as lyricus, and in modern languages, which is why they are commonly called the lyric poets today. The ancient scholars defined the genre on the basis of the musical accompaniment, not the content. Thus, some types of poetry, which would be included under the label lyric poetry in the modern sense, namely the elegy and iambus, which were performed with flutes, are excluded. This explains why some of the better-known poets are missing from the list. In any event, the nine are Alcman of Sparta, Sappho and Alcaeus of Mytilene, Stesichorus of Metaros, Anacreon of Teos, Ibicus of Regium, Simonides and Bacchylides of Chios, and Pindar of Thebes. Archilochus of Paros is the earliest lyric poet for whom biographical details have survived. As snippets of information have been preserved by a plethora of ancient authors, 
Since we know many personal details about him, it has been said that he is the first Greek of flesh and blood whom we can grasp through the mists of antiquity. Dates aren't certain, but he flourished sometime between 680 and 620 BC. He is known for his ironic and satirical wit, with which he did not hesitate to mock not only events and his fellow man, but also himself. Having been the son of a nobleman and a slave woman, he would have been excluded from the ruling class, which explains his viewpoint against the old heroic ideal. Peros had previously founded a colony on the island of Thasos in the northern Aegean, so Archilochus moved there, hoping to seek a better livelihood than what his status would have found at Peros. But he had no love of the sea and sang of the bitter gifts of Poseidon, and was nostalgic for sweet home, as he put it. He eventually participated in some of the military operations that took place at Thassos against the indigenous Thracians. In Homer's day, it was unthinkable for a poet to be a warrior. But thanks to the hoplite revolution, we see that change taking place with Archilochus, who broke the mold and openly referred to himself as both a poet and a warrior. He stresses the importance of his dual role by saying, I am the squire of the lord of war, Ares, and I understand the lovely gifts of the muses. And again he says, In my spear is my kneaded barley bread, in my spear my Ismerian wine, I drink leaning on my spear. Archilochus also seems to have made a living, at least part of the time, as a mercenary soldier. We talked about hoplite warfare, with people fighting for their communities. But there were also some men who freelanced, and Archilochus seems to have been one of them. Thus, where Tertius and Callinus stress the heroic deeds of defending your polis, it is not shocking that Archilochus, a man for hire, pokes fun at them. In regards to patriotism to a polis, he says, Well, some Thracian is enjoying the shield which I left. I had no choice, so I left it in a bush. Oh well, I saved my skin, so what do I care about the shield? To hell with it. A new one's just as good. It should be noted that he wasn't a coward. He did fight for Paros at one point, as he was reported to have been killed defending Paros against the neighboring Naxians. Regardless, this is not the boast of a Homeric hero. Archilochus also uses humor to puncture the pretentiousness of the nobles by poking fun at their obsession with physical beauty and manly excellence by saying, I don't like a general who is big and walks with swagger or who glories in his curly hair and shaves off his mustache. Give me a man who is little, bandy-legged, feet firm on the ground, and full of heart. This is another reflection of the new realities of hoplite warfare, but also a reflection of the social class tensions. It's not that the old values have completely disappeared, though. He describes Thassos as an awful place to live multiple times in his poems, including saying that it bristles with timber like a donkey's back. He's fighting on behalf of a people he hates, as he states the dregs of all the Greeks have come together in Thassos, but yet he values his closest comrades and their stalwart and glorious commander. He also says, There's one big thing I know, to pay back injury done to me with terrible injuries. In this, we can still see the old heroic code of helping one's friends and hurting one's enemies vividly. Archilochus's works also focused a lot on outrageous conduct, such as drinking and carousing, his sexual adventures, the pain of losing his brother-in-law in a shipwreck, hatred of his enemies, and the uncertainties of life 
in alternating tones of deep seriousness and obscene levity. His style is sparsely embellished, with few adjectives and brief similes. He used colloquial language and perfected satire in iambic verse. Elegies, epigrams, and hymns have also been attributed to him. All that remain, sadly, are fragments, the longest of which consists of only ten lines. Some of his most famous maxims are The gods gave man great patience to deal with incurable ills, and The fox knows many things, while the porcupine only one, but it's excellent. Some of Archilochus's verses are erotic and some are quite sexual. He says, She rejoiced, holding a branch of myrtle and the rose tree's lovely flower, and her hair shattered her shoulders and her back. A lovely image of a beautiful woman, where he writes about his own desire, and he pains with longing. These are feelings that we can identify with. But there's another element in Archilochus too, that we will find in many of the other poets, and that is a pervasive sense of anxiety. Remember, the archaic period was a time of change, and he writes about the uncertainty of how the gods treat us, saying, They set men upright who have been laid low on the black earth. Often, they trip even those who are standing tall and roll them onto their backs. And then many troubles come to them, and a man wanders in want of livelihood, unhinged in mind. Essentially, he is saying that the gods can pick us up when we are down, but they can also smack us flat, and none of it is totally under our control. The vivid language and intimate details of his poems often look autobiographical, Yet Aristotle reports that Archilochus sometimes role-played. The philosopher quoted two fragments as examples of him speaking in somebody else's voice. In one, an unnamed father commented on a recent eclipse of the sun, witnessed at Thassos, which if true, was either the eclipse that took place in June 660 BC or April 648 BC. In the other, a carpenter named Charon expressed his indifference to the wealth of Gyges, the king of Lydia. It was in this passage that we first saw the word tyrannos, mentioned a few episodes back. Archilochus was revered by the ancient Greeks as one of their most brilliant authors, able to be mentioned in the same breath as Homer and Hesiod. Archilochus was not included in the canonical list of nine lyric poets compiled by Hellenistic scholars, as his range exceeded their narrow criteria for lyric, that being verse accompanied by the lyre. He did in fact compose some lyric poetry, but only the tiniest fragments of these survive today. However, they include one of the most famous of all lyric utterances, a hymn to Heracles, with which victors were hailed at the Olympic Games, featuring a resounding refrain, Tanella Kalanike, meaning, Joyful greetings, glorious victor, in which the first word imitates the sound of the lyre. Paradoxically, though, for all of his skill as a poet, Archilochus was also censored as the archetypal poet of blame. The Spartans, for example, found Archilochus so outrageous that they forbade the recitation of his poetry at Sparta, lest it harm their morals, according to the Roman author Valerius Maximus. In antiquity, the expression Archilochian dart illustrated the quality of Archilochus's satire and came to denote any such scathing comment. Pindar wrote that he fattened himself on harsh words of hatred. Plutarch condemned him for his unseemly and lewd utterances directed towards women. Of course, he was referring to what he wrote about his love affair with his embittered fiancée, named Niobe, and her father, Lycambes. He was angry at Lycambes for reneging on their betrothal agreement. 
presumably because her father disliked his unabashed poetry. So Archilochus retaliated with such poetic abuse, with highly critical language, that Lycambes, Neobule, and her sisters were reported to have been driven to suicide. Yet, some ancient scholars interpreted his motives more sympathetically. Diochrysostom wrote, Of the two poets, who for all time deserve to be compared with no other, namely Homer and Archilochus, Homer praised nearly everything, but Archilochus went to the opposite extreme, to censor, seeing that men are in greater need of this. And first of all, he censors himself, thus winning for himself the highest commendation from the heavens. Another iambic and elegiac poet, who was a younger contemporary of Archilochus, was Simonides of Amorgus, the easternmost island of the Cyclades. None of his elegiac poetry has survived, though, but fragments of his iambic poetry survive as quotations in other ancient authors, the most extensive and well-known of which is 118 lines of what is called Types of Women. The poem is based on the idea that Zeus created men and women differently, and that he specifically created 10 types of women based on different models from the natural world. The poem takes the form of a catalog, with each type of woman represented by an animal whose characteristics, according to the poet that is, are also characteristic of a large body of the female population. Of the ten types of women in the poem, nine are delineated as destructive. The dirty woman comes from a pig. The cunning woman originates from a fox. The incessantly curious and high-maintenance woman comes from the dog. The lazy or apathetic woman comes from the earth or soil. The capricious woman of mood swings comes from seawater. The stubborn woman comes from an ass. The untrusty and uncontrollable woman comes from a weasel or skunk, depending on the translation. The overly proud woman comes from a mare. And the worst and ugliest type of woman comes from an ape or monkey. Only the bee woman, who is dismissed as an impossible ideal, is regarded as virtuous. The bee reference is considered homage to the earlier theogony of Hesiod, which uses the metaphor of women and men as bees in one part. The poem is notable for its length, as it's the longest surviving example of early Greek iambic poetry. Along with Hesiod's telling of the story of Pandora in the Theogony, it is one of the earliest texts attesting to the misogyny in ancient Greek thought. In the 7th century BC, Sparta was vastly different than its classical counterpart. We will discuss these changes in future episodes. In any event, Sparta's nobles lived luxuriously, like the nobles of other lands, and the city showed other interests than just martial ones. Soon enough, lyric poetry found a home at the royal courts of Sparta. At about the time of the Second Mycenaean War, Terpander of Lesbos was said to have visited Sparta and instituted the musical contest at the Carnea, the great festival to Apollo and Lacedaemon. Some accounts state he was summoned there by the Delphic Oracle of Apollo, who, as you know, was the god of music and poetry. In any event, Terpander was regarded by the ancients as the father of Greek music and lyric poetry. Although he didn't create music, as we discussed it has been in use for centuries, he is credited with systematizing the various modes of music which existed in Greece and Anatolia. According to Strabo, he increased the number of strings in the lyre from four to seven and invented the cathara, a stringed instrument that in modern Greek means guitar. Those who could play the cathara were known as kitharodes and were trained professionals as the cathara required a high level of technical skill. Terpander is also said to have introduced several new rhythms in addition to the dactylic, and to have been famous as a composer of drinking songs, called scolia. 
No poems attributed to Terpander survive complete, and very few lines of his are quoted by later Greek writers. It must be regarded as doubtful whether he actually even worked in writing. According to tradition, Terpander is said to have died by choking on a fig when the fruit was thrown in appreciation of one of his performances. Balletes was another early Greek musician and poet that migrated to Sparta. Plutarch states that he was invited by the semi-mythical lawgiver Lycurgus, who had left Sparta and was traveling around the Aegean to study the various forms of government in order to create the most effective constitution for Sparta. At that time, Sparta was embroiled in factional strife. While on Crete at Gorton, Lycurgus met Thaletes, who was a wise statesman and lyric poet. He convinced him to go to Sparta, where he introduced from his native Crete certain principles or elements of music and rhythm, which did not exist in Terpander's system, and thereby founded the second of the musical schools, which flourished at Sparta. The improvements were in the realm of religious rites to Apollo in songs and dances. Plutarch writes that his odes were so many exhortations to obedience and harmony, and their measured rhythms were permeated with ordered tranquility, so that those who listened to them were insensibly softened in their dispositions, insomuch that they renounced the mutual hatreds, which were so rife at that time, and dwelt together in a common pursuit of what was high and noble. Effectively, if you believe Plutarch, Lycurgus sent Thaletes to Sparta to hypnotize the people into peace. Well, I never said Plutarch wasn't a good storyteller. In any event, we will cover Lycurgus in much greater detail in a future episode. Plutarch and the other writers speak of Thaletes as a lyric poet, and it is pretty certain that the musical compositions of his age and school were often combined with suitable original poems, though sometimes they were adapted to the verses of Homer. Be this as it may, no remains of the poetry of Thaletes has survived. So that makes two Spartan poets who have left us with nothing. Well, luckily for us, the third time's a charm. It just so happens that there was a third foreigner at that time who was in Sparta, a man named Alcman. He's considered the earliest of the canonical nine lyric poets, as determined by Hellenistic Alexandria, and was responsible for the evolution of early lyric choral poetry into a written body of literature. Not much is known about his life, though. He was purported to have been from the Lydian capital of Sardis. According to Aristotle, Alcman came to Sparta as a slave, sold to a noble family, but was eventually emancipated because of his great poetic skill. Alcman was particularly celebrated for his erotic poetry, not all of which was necessarily based on personal experience. His work was collected into six books by the Hellenistic Alexandrians. He also wrote music to accompany his verse. The songs were performed by a chorus, mainly of maidens rather than a singer, and were therefore known as Parthenia, or Songs for Virgins. Approximately 100 verses of these have survived. Alcman was said to have composed songs for Spartan boys as well, but those are lost. He himself played the cathara, but also used the aeolus, saying that it harmonized well to the voices of children and girls. Referring to the expressive and joyous style of his music, he aptly said, I know the songs of the birds, the songs of all the birds. The short surviving excerpts of his work, composed in the Doric dialect of Sparta, leave us with the impression of a charming and simple poetic style, just slightly commonplace. He does, however, distinguish himself with certain exceptional descriptions of nature, in the manner of Hesiod. Aristotle reported that Alcman died in Sparta from a pestilent infestation of lice. 
Pausanias said he was buried in Sparta, next to the tomb of Helen of Troy. Take that for what it's worth, though. Tertius also was a poet of Sparta, of the 7th century BC. Several ancient sources, including Plato, Strabo, and Pausanias, believed that he was an Athenian who defected to Sparta. Yet Tertius wasn't listed by Herodotus among the two foreigners ever to have been awarded Spartan citizenship, implying that he was a natural-born Spartan. Confusion about his place of origin could have had several causes. It might have been due to later ancient assumptions that Sparta was too, well, Spartan, ever to have produced a talented poet of its own, and thus he had to have been Athenian, or because Tertius didn't compose in the Doric dialect, or vernacular of Sparta, unlike his near-contemporary Alcman, but imitated the conventional literary dialect of Homer, which was Ionian. The poet's tone of authority when addressing the Spartan warrior class seems to indicate that he was one of them. Either way, he wrote many poems for Sparta, known especially for his political and military elegies, exhorting Spartans to support the state authorities and to fight bravely against the Messenians, who had temporarily succeeded in wrestling their land away from Spartan control, hence the need for the aforementioned Second Messenian War. Unfortunately, only three fragments of his work have survived. In one of them, as we saw in the Hoplite Warfare episode, he says that he does not give a damn for the list of honorable things found in Homer. All that matters for a good man in Sparta is that he has Andrea, or courage, while fighting in the phalanx. You are nothing without courage. You receive honor for fighting hard, and even more so if you die defending the polis. As Tertius had a big impact on the mindset of Spartan warriors, we will come back to him in a future episode. Callinus of Ephesus, who we quoted also in the Hoplite Warfare episode, was Tertius's contemporary and also wrote martial-themed elegies. Only a few fragments of Callinus's poetry have survived, though. One of the longest fragments, consisting of 21 lines of verse, is a patriotic exhortation to his fellow Ephesians, urging them to fight the invading Sumerians, who were menacing the Greek colonies in Asia Minor after they had sacked the Phrygian kingdom in the 7th century BC. He writes, It is honorable and splendid for a man to fight for his country and children and wedded wife against his enemies. But death will come whenever the fates so spin. Mimnermis was an elegiac poet from either Colophon or Smyrna in Ionia, who flourished about 630-600 to BC. He wrote about myth and was strongly influenced by the example of Homer. Yet he wrote short poems suitable for performance at drinking parties. However, he was remembered by ancient authorities, chiefly as a love poet. His work was collected by Alexandrian scholars in just two books, and today only small fragments survive. Almost no reliable biographical details have been recorded. One ancient account linked him romantically with his flute girl, who subsequently gave her name, Nano, to one of his two books. Memnermis was also capable of playing all by himself, as Strabo described him as both a pipe player and an elegiac poet. Plutarch was critical of the poet's self-indulgence. Mimnermis, however, was not timid in his hedonism, exhorting others to live immoderately, saying, Enjoy yourself. Some of the harsh citizens will speak ill of you. Some better. As we have seen with Tertius and Callinus, archaic elegy was often used for patriotic purposes, and Mimnermis also assumed this role as a poet. He describes the heroic exploits of a Smyrnaean warrior against the cavalry of the Lydian king Gyges. Mimnermis evidently hoped thereby to strengthen his countrymen's resolve against further Lydian encroachments. 
He was alive when Smyrna was besieged, for the final time by the Illidians, under Aliates, and possibly he died with the town. The disappearance of Smyrna, for the next 300 years, might be the reason why Colophon was able to claim the poet as one of its own. Yet Smyrna's own claim persisted, and this suggests that its claim was true. Arion of Lesbos played the Cathara and was a poet credited with inventing the Dithram, a wildly enthusiastic hymn, sung and danced in honor of Dionysus. According to Aristotle, a Dithram was the forerunner of Athenian tragedy. Arion, though, left Lesbos and traveled to Sicily, where he won a musical competition. On his return trip, Herodotus relates a famous folktale. Arion was kidnapped by a group of pirates, who sought to kill him and steal the rich prizes he had won. Arion was given the choice of suicide, with a proper burial on land, or being thrown into the sea to perish. Neither prospect appealed to Arion, so he played his cathara and sang a praise to Apollo, the god of music, and his song attracted a number of dolphins around the ship. At the end of the song, Arion threw himself into the sea, but one of the dolphins saved his life and carried him to safety at the sanctuary of Poseidon at Cape Teneron on the southern coast of the Peloponnese. When he reached land, he continued his journey to Corinth, where the tyrant Periander welcomed him graciously. Arion supposedly introduced the Dithram to Corinth and was under the patronage of Periander. Eventually, those same pirates made their way to Corinth, and the tyrant had them executed. While not entirely impossible, I suppose, the veracity of this entire dolphin and pirate story is questionable at best. On the next episode, we are going to continue our story about the poets and their times as we bring the 7th century BC to a close and head into the 6th century BC, a period of increased tyranny and social tension in the Greek world, which, as we will see, will have a big influence on writing. So join us next time on the History of Ancient Greece. Episode 19, Poets and Wise Rulers. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes on your phone every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you are checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Thanks everyone for your continued support, and I hope you are enjoying the podcast. I would like to give a special thanks to the amazing artist Michael Levy for allowing me to feature his music on this podcast. He transports you to the ancient world, bringing to life the melodies and using the techniques of the past. A new song will be played every episode. This one is titled, Ancient Greek Musical Fragment Poem from his album, The Ancient Greek Liar. If you like what you heard and are curious to learn more about ancient Greek music, check out his website at ancientliar.com. His albums are available in every major digital music store, including iTunes, Amazon, and Spotify.